Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Since we have a, uh, an extended passage today, I'm not going to have us read it, but I do want you to pray with me. Am I on? Glory, yeah, he's on. Okay. Father, it's been such a good morning, and uh, all these songs and Roy's prayer goes perfectly with this text. Even the slide, how can we keep from singing? I pray this morning you would refresh our minds. Help us to realize who we are in Christ. If someone here doesn't know him, I pray that today is the day that they come to him. Ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, take these words and penetrate every heart. Don't let there be any kind of stony hearts or anything like that. Let it be good and fertile. Ask in your name, amen. Listen to this story from a pastor that deals with the unexpected suffering that sometimes comes along in this life. A couple came in for counseling. They desperately want to have a baby. They have prayed and waited for 12 anxious years. They see other people with baby carriages and bassinets, and they wonder why they are denied. They trudge on year after year. Then one day, it happens. The liquid in the test tube changes color, and their prayers are finally answered. And then they have a perfect, healthy baby boy, and they believe. When he is three years old, this answered prayer is playing with an orange ball outside. It lands on a crack in the sidewalk and bounces crazily to the left. It didn't have to happen that way. A little more breeze, a little nudge from God and the ball would have missed the crack. It could have bounced to the right, but it doesn't. God doesn't nudge it, and it goes to the left. And that means into the street. And the boy goes after it and never sees the car. And now they are alone again, this mother and father. Their world has landed on a crack and has bounced away with an orange ball. And now their answered prayer hurts worse than their unanswered prayer. The laughter in their life has died. You know, when you have your faith and hope attached to things, and those things or those people don't work out, it can be devastating to your faith. And as we learned last week, David wanted to honor the Lord, but it all went terribly wrong. So my question this morning is, what do we do when God does things that we don't agree with nor understand? Welcome back to our study. To set the scene from last week, David wanted to move the ark to Jerusalem. But instead of moving it as the law required, he put it on a cart. Well, the cart hit a rut in the road, and a man named Uzzah was afraid it was going to fall off. So he touched it, which God had already warned would bring instant death. And you guessed it, he died. 
This is where we pick up in verse 8. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of God come to me? We are told that David became angry because of this. One thing I love about the Bible is that it's a book that deals with real people in real situations. I like that. Because if we are not careful, we can begin to project an image of ourselves on other Christians that is nothing like we really are when we are alone. John Killinger in his book, For God's Sake Be Human, writes this. He tells about a pastor who every Sunday tried to hurry his family along and get them to church on time. And it just never went right. One particular Sunday morning, everything was going wrong. Not only was the church driving him crazy, but his family was too. But anyway, his wife's hair dryer was in a way. His kids were fighting. He knew that one of his power deacons was going to be looking at his watch to see the exact time that the pastor arrived. And the climax came when the, his wife's cat, which she had never liked much anyway, got up on the dresser and sent his tie tack going underneath the bed. This poor brother was so overcome with anger that he scooped up the cat and threw it across the room, and it landed between the wall and a hot radiator. Well, you can imagine the blood-curling scream that that cat let out. Two hours later, of course, this cat-flinging creature was in the pulpit, oozing pious noises and promising sweet nothings to his people. He said, Oh, when I am in Christ, I have a great peace and calm. I have a feeling of love and charity for everyone and for everything. But there was a descending voice from about ten pews back. His wife said, Don't you believe that old hypocrite? You ought to see what his peace and calm did to my cat. My point is, we need to be authentic in our faith. It's okay to admit that we're sometimes angry or greedy or petty. As long as we understand that it is wrong, and we deal with it as the Scripture commands. Now, why was David angry? Verse 8 tells us it was because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. This is a clear echo of chapter 5, verse 20, where we read, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. David had been glad of the Lord's terrifying power when it was directed against his enemies, the Philistines, it was, however, more troubling when the same terrifying power came against one of his own people. That teaches us that we cannot control God. God will always act in concert with his nature, even with his own children. He is faithful to bless our obedience, but he will punish our disobedience. That sounds like a pretty good father, I think. Because of this, verse 9 says that David was afraid of the Lord today, that day. David was afraid of the Lord because it dawned on him precisely that he did not completely understand the Lord. However, God was teaching David and all of Israel with him through emphasizing in dramatic fashion that he is holy. David could not take God for granted, and neither may we presume against the Lord today. We're kind of like moths circling in an open flame. We are drawn to God's beauty and to his holiness. He draws us and we are fascinated by what we see. But that holiness unshielded is dangerous and destructive to the flesh. We cannot look upon God's glory except we are shielded from the threat of destruction by the sacrifice of our Savior. 
Recall the words of Hebrews who sought to instruct the scattered Jewish Christians. We read, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Most people, along with those at the scene, would think that God was a little harsh in killing Uzzah for just touching the ark. But David didn't think God was a little harsh. David thought God was a lot harsh. He was angry at, the, at God for the severity of his anger. So we see David being angry at God for being angry. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, toward the end of the story, Mr. and Miss Beaver take the children to meet Aslan, who is a great lion in the king of Narnia and as such a type of Christ. The children are surprised when they learn that Aslan is a lion. Lucy says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either better than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Of course he isn't safe, but he's the king, and he is good, I tell you. Perhaps if we were to summarize the message of this whole story, it would be just that. Our God is good, but he is not safe. That is why we rejoice with him with reverence and awe. When David had abandoned his plan to bring the ark up, he had left it in the house of a foreigner named Obed-Edom. Three months have passed. We are told very little what happened during those days. I imagine David's confusion. What was he to do about the ark? How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? That is the key question for every parent, church, and ministry. How will God's glory fill my house, my family, and my church? I see David tossing and turning through sleepless nights as the question was asked on the day that Uzzah died, that it continued to bother him. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Look at verse 10 with me. And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Talk about an unwanted blessing. I bet Obed-Edom wasn't jumping up and down with his hands yelling, Pick me, pick me. Like others who had witnessed or heard of God's judgment, it's likely that Obed-Edom was reluctant to accept the responsibility of keeping the ark. But that didn't matter. The king made an executive decision to leave the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. What was the poor man going to say? He didn't dare refuse. He was the king. He spoke. And people obeyed. I can't imagine Miss Obed-Edom eyeing that strange chest sitting in her living room. She likely wondered how she would ever vacuum around it. I can almost hear her say to her husband, Whatever you do, don't touch it. I don't want to lose you. I guess. Unless you wish you married that dentist like her mother wanted. We just don't know. That's something you're going to have to grapple with to keep you awake also. In verse 8, David was displeased. In verse 9, he was afraid. Here in verse 12, he is glad. Now, why is that? 
I think that during that time, David searched the Scripture and discovered or was reminded of the proper way that the ark was to be transported. He found out the correct way of bringing in the glory of God. But this time, there was no boards, no big wheels, no parade, no fanfare, no hype, just simple obedience. This time, the ark was carried in simplicity and humility on the shoulders of four priests. David had examined his anger and discovered that he was wrong and that God was not wrong. God had done exactly what he said he would do in Numbers 4. If you look inside the ark or you touch the ark, you will die. Jesus said in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But it will often make you miserable first. When I look into the mirror of Scripture, it reveals things about me that I need to align with God's will and His purpose in my life. And sometimes that is very difficult for us to do. Verse 13, And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Although Bible scholars disagree on this verse, I think they just stopped one time after the first six steps instead of stopping every six steps going back. And the reason is, given the distance, they would have had to stop approximately 3,960 times if they went every six steps. That sounds like a vacation with your kids going to the bathroom, doesn't it? If we look at the dictionary to help us understand the nature of enthusiasm with, with David Dance, we find that enthusiasm is sometimes defined as religious fanaticism. Now, enthusiasm is a strong excitement or a feeling. And to be enthusiastic means to be a person who is ardently attached to a cause, object, or pursuit, or one who tends to become fervently interested in something. Entheos is the English equivalent of the Greek word, which means in God. And the word enthusiasm is derived from the Greek word enthusia, which comes from the word entheos. So when we say that we feel enthusiasm, it literally means we feel like we are in God or that we have God inside us. Now, this brings us to the age-old dilemma. Can Christians dance? Somebody once asked Greg Laurie about that, and he said, well, some of them can. Most of us shouldn't dance. Not because it's a sin, but just out of respect for the arts. You know I love you guys. But I've seen you try to clap. You're mostly honkies with no rhythm. Except Pastor John. I've seen him break dancing. He's actually pretty good. But anyway, this time there is no car. The only animals are to be there for sacrifices. Isn't it amazing what a difference some poles and shoulders can make? Now, what has happened? David has made a conscious effort to keep the Lord's precepts and to bind himself with them. And now he's free to dance. It says that David was wearing a linen ephod. This means that David took off all of his royal robes. That is a picture of what worship is. Worship is disrobing. It's getting naked and exposing ourselves to God. It's also about, it's not about the, I'm sorry, it's also the recognition that it's not about what we can do for God, 
It's not about our royal robes. It's about what God has done for us. The greatest freedom in the world, I think, is having nothing to prove. Instead of trying to prove who he was, the king of Israel, David was embracing who God is, which is the king of kings. Verse 15, please. So David and all the house of Israel are bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitudes of Israel, both the men and women, a cake of bread and one of the dates and one of the raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. Please notice in verse 15, last week we learned that on the ark's ill-fated first journey, it was accompanied by music played with hands, things like harps and stringed instruments and tambourines. Here, though, it is only accompanied by wind instruments, the mouth and the trumpet. I find that intriguing because breath is symbolic of the Spirit, and it's not by might, it's not by power, it's not by anything of the flesh, but only by the Spirit is anything of any significance ever accomplished. In verse 16, Michal is identified not as the wife of David, but as the daughter of Saul. This phrase will be repeated again in verses 20 and 23. She represents the old rejected kingdom of her father. Why did she see? Not the ark of the Lord coming into the city, but King David leaping and dancing. It was undignified. It was embarrassing. Where was the royal dignity? Mikkel saw this as a conduct unbecoming of a king. Let me put it in context. Envision Donald Trump escaping the Oval Office and cartwheeling down Pennsylvania Avenue in his Fruit of the Looms. But this was the joy of the Lord in David's case. Mark Buchanan writes the following, and your God is too safe. He writes, the Lord is deeply and passionately committed to our joy. Where did we get the idea that religion is a stiff, dull, flat business? All pursed lips and knitted brows and gloomy outlooks. Where did we get the portrait of the religious type of sour, harsh, brooding, and scolding? However, did we forget to dance and laugh and play and live? We can see religion, of course, as gloominess in the Pharisees and religious rulers of that day. The people came into town alongside Jesus, singing and skipping and clapping their hands. Shut these people up, the chief priest ordered. Jesus said, if they remain silent, the rocks themselves will sing. The Pharisees accused Jesus of hanging out with the wrong people and going to all the wrong parties. He eats with sinners, they said aghast. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. He kept comparing himself to a groom at a wedding feast, so that now was the time of the party. He always seemed to be eating and then sleeping. He kept describing heaven like a huge party. Loud music, lots of fattening food, drinks, dancing, singing. The religious leaders hated it as they do today. They found Jesus irreverent, frivolous, irresponsible, a threat to public order and decency. Stop that dancing. Stop that laughing. Stop that singing. Stop that eating. Stop that playing. Stop having fun. 
Stop it, stop it, stop it. Buchanan concludes by saying, do we want to imitate them? Verse 20. But when David returned to bless the household, Michal the daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of the servants maids, one of the foolish ones, shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and be, I will be humble in my own eyes. But the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. At the end of this, we can imagine the people back in their homes, gladly aware of the goodness of the kingdom which they now found themselves, exhausted by a day of joyful celebration. However, within David's own household, there was a rather different perspective on the events of that day. There is one dissonant voice. There is one set of fingernails on the blackboard. Her voice dripped with sarcasm. She had found David's behavior utterly intolerable. She saw it as vulgar, and so she ruined the party. This is going to date me. It's like when you were in high school, you're having a secret party at a friend's house. And there are beer cans everywhere, and people are dancing, and no one noticed the parents have came back one day early. And the father drags the needle across a record player, totally scratching the full game record that you were jamming to. For those of you under 30, a record is like a giant CD. Just, just Google it when you get home. Okay. And it was wrong for us to have an underage drinking party. I understand that, and I'm not condoning it. I'm just trying to draw a spiritual parallel, so don't text me. But David recognized in Michal the pride and the spiritual blindness of her father, Saul, whose one desire was to gain and keep his popularity with the people. But David preferred to live and to serve only the Lord. He reminded Michal that it was the Lord who had chosen him to replace him or place her father with him, and that he would do whatever the Lord prompted him to do. In other words, David did not need the counsel of a carnal daughter of a deposed and disgraced king. But because Michal despised passionate worship and simple expressions of praise, she would have no children. Or we could say, she would bear no fruit. So too, the family, the person, or the church that doesn't praise will be fruitless. God doesn't desire big parades or flashy drama. Rather, he desires simplicity, sincerity, and passion. Listen to this quote I found. But a woman of Mikkel's character cannot but act like an icicle on the spiritual life of the household. She belonged to the class that cannot tolerate enthusiasm in religion. In any other cause, enthusiasm may be excused, perhaps extolled and admired. In the painter, the musician, the traveler, even the child of pleasure. The only persons whose enthusiasm is unbearable are those who are enthusiastic in the regards for the Savior. And the answer they give to this question, What shall I render to the Lord for all the benefits that he has given to me? He says, there are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. 
But can it be right, listen to this quote, to give all our coldness to Christ and all of our enthusiasm to the world? This is the part of the sermon where you either say amen or ouch. Just know this. When you get excited, don't expect everybody to get excited about your excitement. Here's why. When the Holy Spirit turns up the BTUs, and it, disrupts, it always disrupts the status quo. Some people will be inspired by what God is doing in your life. Others will be convicted. And they will mask their personal conviction by finding something in you to criticize. Because very often criticism is a defense mechanism. We criticize in others things that we don't like about ourselves. Here's one of my personal definitions of faith. It is the willingness to sometimes look foolish. Noah looked foolish building an ark in the desert. Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes at age 90. The Israelites looked foolish marching around Jericho blowing trumpets. David looked foolish attacking Goliath with nothing but a slingshot. The wise man looked foolish following the star. Peter looked foolish stepping out of the boat in the middle of the water and in the middle of the night. And Jesus looked foolish hanging on a cross. But that's faith. Faith is the willingness to sometimes look foolish. Because the results speak for themselves, don't they? Noah was saved from the flood. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. David defeated Goliath. The wise man found the Messiah. Peter walked on water. And Jesus, well, he rose from the dead. Can I tell you why some of us have never killed a giant or walked on water? It is because we are not willing to look foolish. Let me put it in a theological perspective. What does Ephesians 5.18 say? Don't be drunk with wine. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill you and control you. What happens when you get drunk? You lose all your inhibition. Paul is saying that is the wrong way to lose inhibition. The right way is to be filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will help us overcome our ungodly inhibitions. I'll close with a story that includes both dancing and joy. In his book, The Life You Always Wanted, John Ortberg writes, Sometimes, Some time ago I was giving a bath to our three children. I had a custom of bathing them together more to save time than anything else. I knew that eventually I would have to stop root bathing, but for the time it seemed efficient. Johnny was still in the tub. Laura was out safely in her pajamas, and I was trying to get Mallory dried off. Mallory was out of the water, but she was doing what has come to be known in our family as the D-Dod Day Dance. This consists of running around in circles, singing over and over again, D-Dod Day, D-Dod Day. It's a relatively simple dance expressing great joy. When she is too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her or euphoria, she has to dance to release her joy. So she does the dee day On this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry, I prodded. So she did. She began running in circles faster and chanting dee day more rapidly. No, Mallory, that's not what I mean. Stop with the dee day stuff and get over here so I can dry you off. Hurry. Then she asked a profound question. Why? Ertberg writes, I had no answer. I had nowhere to go, 
nothing to do, no meetings to attend, no sermons to write. I was just so used to hurrying, so preoccupied with my little agenda, so trapped and moving in the one task to another. But here was life. Here was joy. Here was an invitation that danced right in front of me, and I was missing it. He finishes by saying, so I got up and Mallory and I did the Dida Day dance together. And Father, that's what we need. We need the joy of the Lord. We live in a society, Lord, where we are no longer the home team. We are no longer the favorites. And I do believe, Lord, it is going to get worse. So I pray that you would just prepare us, Lord, for the things that come. Help us to draw even closer to you. For uh, as has been said so many times this morning, there is no plan B. You are, are our only chance. And I'm glad that you are victorious. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.